Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, this is Michelle T, and I'm a writer, and I'm also the founder of a literary nonprofit in San Francisco called Radar Productions. And once a year, we have a big gala blowout fundraiser called The Spectacle. And this year, it's on June 17th at the Verdi Club in the Mission, and we have performances and an art auction. And uh, we have performances by Sintra Wilson, the writers coming up from Los Angeles to read with us, um, performance artists Keith Hennessy, Philip Wang, Little Miss Hot Mess, Love Wars, and we have an amazing art auction with work by Nan Golden, the writers Anne Carson and Dave Eggers gave us artwork. Local artist Lisa Brown. We have work from the um, street artist Swoon, who was featured in Blanksy's um, movie Exit Through the Gift Shop. And we have a piece from the punk icon Richard Hell. So you'll be able to bid on all of that on June 17th at the Verdi Club. So now I'm going to be reading from uh, a novel that I just finished yesterday. And it's called Black Wave. And it takes place in the 90s, and it's as if the world was coming to an end in the 90s in San Francisco. And um, I think this part happens right after the main character, Michelle, has a love-at-first-sight moment with the teen slam poet. And she's talking about it with her best friend, Ziggy. And after that, we get a look at her complicated love life. Ziggy was both scandalized and delighted by Michelle's love-at-first-sight encounter with the teenager. Her walk when newly drunk became a sort of dance. She swiveled out from her hips as she slid down the street. Like many butches, Ziggy dealt with her feminine hips by weighing them down with a lot of junk. A heavy belt was threaded through the loops of her leather pants. The word raggedy was spelled in metal studs across the back, as if you could not simply see for yourself. All the dykes had recently discovered that shop in the Castro where leather daddies got their belts and vests and caps and chaps. A bearded fag resembling the Greek god Hephaestus would pound the word of your choice into the leather with bits of metal. It was expensive, but worth it if you had it. Ziggy went from rags to riches regularly, scoring jobs at yuppie restaurants and then slipping on a wet floor and throwing her back out. She blew her cash on leather goods and rounds of tequila for everyone, plus some cocaine and maybe a nice dinner in a five-star restaurant where the service people treated her like swine. Whatever was left over was given away to people on the street, and then it was back to bumming cigarettes off her friends. But Ziggy's hips. A leather man was snapped to her belt, like a Swiss army knife, but more so. The gadget flipped open like a butterfly knife, becoming a pair of pliers with a world of miniature tools fanning out from the handles. Screwdriver, corkscrew, scissors, tweezers. The leather man was a lesbian phenomena, and life ran more smoothly because of it. Ziggy had that on one hip, and a buck knife in a worn leather sheaf on the other. A hanky forever tufted from her back pocket. Corresponding to the infamous faggot code, the hue, pattern, or even material flagging from Ziggy's butt transmitted the desire for a particular sexual activity. The exact pocket it flagged from communicated whether the butch would like to be on the giving or receiving end. Ziggy's tastes were varied and shifting, and hankies of many sort danced between her pockets. 
In Ziggy's other pocket sat a leather wallet hooked to her belt loops with a swag of silver chain. The overall effect of these accessories was not unlike a woman dancing hula in a skirt of shells and coconuts, or belly dancers draping their bellies in chainmail. The swinging, glinting hardware propelled Ziggy forward from her core, and though your eyes were drawn to the spectacle, like dazzle camouflage, the flash obscured the femininity. A lot of butches wore this look, but Ziggy did it best. "'Gay men date younger boys all the time,' Michelle said fiercely. "'Okay, Nambla,' Ziggy snorted. "'Okay, Nambla, Kayla Turno.' Not like that, Michelle said. Just, you know what I mean, older fags and younger fags, like legally young. Daddies, Zeus and Ganymede. Ganymede was a child, Ziggy schooled. Yeah, you were there, Michelle retorted. On Mount Olympus, you were working the door. You carded Ganymede. Michelle's joke reminded her of a true story in which Ziggy picked up a girl with hair so short there was almost nothing for her Hello Kitty barrettes to clamp onto. She wore a pink dog collar around her neck and left her ID on Ziggy's bedroom floor by accident. She had not been old enough to get into the bar where Ziggy seduced her. That's not the same thing, Ziggy defended. That girl lied to me. Just by being in the bar, she was pretending to be at least 21. That was not my fault. So, Michelle said, if the poet lied to me about her age, it would be okay? It's too late, Ziggy said scornfully, swigging the old English. You met her at the teen poetry slam. It is too late for you, Nambla K. Letourneau. Ziggy hips swiveled as she skipped along. Ziggy had briefly been a modern dancer in the Midwest, but her drug habit had foiled her, even though everyone was happy about how whittled down skinny the opiates had kept her. She moved into the poetry scene and became one of its stars. Still, when she got drunk, she liked to dance. She sashayed down the block, nearly running into a shriveled old crackhead woman who had emerged from the mouth of an SRO hotel. At least Michelle thought she was old. She might have been 30, but crack is such an evil potion, it turns maidens to hags in a season. "'You know what to do,' the woman croaked in a prophetic timber. "'Do it! Do it! Do it now! Do it now!' Michelle and Ziggy looked at one another, alarmed. Lifelong city dwellers both were accustomed to the spooky public outbursts of addicts and crazy people, but Ziggy tended to treat them as oracles dispensing coded messages. "'Do what?' Ziggy asked, suddenly desperate. "'Do what? Oh, God! I feel like that woman just looked into my soul!' Ziggy's eyes got the focused, unfocused look that only a drunk Pisces with eyes that color green can achieve. She retraced her steps and pulled a palmful of coins from the tight front pocket of her leather pants. She placed it in the woman's chickeny hand. You know, she told Ziggy. She was wearing a bright piece of fabric wound around her head, and her eyes stared out from the cave of her face. You know. I do, Ziggy replied solemnly. Thank you. Michelle thought Ziggy was probably crazy herself, but there was a chance she wasn't, and that the street people of their neighborhood were, in fact, prophets, apocalyptically wise, witches damaged from being born into a time with no respect for magic. Michelle preferred this story over the alternative of everyone having chemical imbalances and genetic predispositions to alcoholism, so she supported Ziggy and helped her puzzle out the cryptic warning of the street oracle. Is there anything you think you should do right now? Michelle asked Ziggy. Ziggy thought. Write a novel, she mused. Ziggy stuck to poetry, but it was hard to make money as a poet, and Ziggy really liked money. Another option was moving to Los Angeles to direct films, but that seemed like such an intense thing to do. Apply for a grant? She dug deep. I was thinking about doing yoga, she said. Recently, Ziggy had been brief dates with a bi-curious yoga instructor who kicked everyone's butt at pool. Prana, the girl would smile after sinking the final ball, raising her fingers to the barroom ceiling in a spiritual gesture. You want to do some yoga and improve your pool game, Michelle asked. 
One of the errant ways Ziggy brought in extra cash was pool sharking. Another was shining shoes with an old-fashioned shoeshine kit she lugged from bar to bar, like a butch version of those peachy puff girls selling cigarettes and candy and useless light-up plastic roses. As the peachy puffs wore ridiculous and sexy costumes resembling the spangled outfits little girls tap dance in, Ziggy knew which garments would appropriately fetishize her labor. She shined shoes and a stained undershirt and a tight pair of Levi's. Maybe she was talking to me, Michelle suggested. Do it like make out with the poet. The teen, Ziggy corrected. Persephone, Michelle insisted. But the teen's name was such a mouthful. Was it her real name, Michelle wondered? San Francisco was full of people who changed their names upon moving to town. Trashbag, Spike, Monster, Machine, Scout, Junkyard, Prairie Dog, Flipper, Fiverr, Kiki, Smalley, Rage, Sugar, and Frog were only some of the individuals Michelle had met since coming to California. But Persephone was young and disconnected from the queer scene. And she was so visibly Mediterranean, perhaps this was her birth name, Persephone, a great name for a poet, dedicated to the goddess of the underworld, an icon of bipolarity, doomed again and again to the caves of the dead. Michelle found it very romantic. I don't think you should do it, Ziggy said. The thing was, Michelle had a girlfriend. Her last name was Warhol, so everyone called her Andy, though the name on her driver's license was Carlotta. Andy was on a lesbian soccer team. Michelle liked to watch her spike the ball with her head like an aggressive seal. Andy cooked meals at an AIDS hospice in the Castro. She was older than Michelle and had been doing this for many, many years, and so had been around for the terrible era when gay men were dying and dying and dying and dying. Michelle had assumed Andy prepared healthful, nourishing, life-prolonging foods for these men, but as they all had death sentences, what she did was cook them their last meals again and again— Pork chops, mashed potatoes, mac and cheese, fried chicken, hamburger helper when it was requested, and it was. Meatloaf, cupcakes and brownies and pies with ice cream. Andy fed Michelle, too. It was a foundation of their relationship. Without Andy there, there were many times Michelle would have gone hungry. So broke and unemployable was she, so hell-bent on prioritizing liquor above food. Wasn't beer bread, Michelle asked in earnest? Liquid bread? Especially Guinness. Didn't they give Guinness to pregnant women in some country? Ireland, she supposed. And wasn't Michelle Irish? Didn't years of ethnic evolution give her a genetic gift for absorbing the nutrients in a pint of beer? Andy enjoyed Michelle's drinking. She enjoyed it so much, it made Michelle feel both safe and creeped out. Generally, people who did not drink, like Michelle, let's call it heavily, generally they would not want to date her. It was unusual how Andy had not only accepted Michelle's inebriation, she encouraged it. She bought her jugs of beer beyond Michelle's normal price range. She procured pills from folks at work and urged Michelle to take them. This dynamic inspired in Michelle a variety of emotion. Sometimes she felt like a helpless princess being caretaken by a handsome butch, who encouraged the helplessness in order to feel as valiant as possible. It was true, but lazy Michelle enjoyed luxuriating in Andy's valiance. In high school, Michelle had been friends with a group of middle-class goths whose parents were always locking them up in cushy, insane asylums for cutting their arms with exacto knives. Michelle was jealous. She too longed for escape, to flee the squalor of her mother's smoke-filled apartment with its menu of ramen noodles and steakums. She too wanted to lay on a cot beneath a plaque reading, Sylvia Plath slept here, while attendants in clean white clothing brought her covered plates of beef wellington and other upper-class foods. And so she convalesced daily in Andy's Bernal Hill bedroom, allowing her girlfriend to bring her steaming dishes she was often too sickened to eat from. 
Sometimes Michelle felt like the wild girl, the bad girl, an echo of Andy's high school girlfriend, a coke fiend who cut herself and ran away from home all the time. She knew this girl was the template for Andy's ideal, and she enjoyed the challenge of becoming it. Stuck in Andy's bed, she felt like a big cat, outsized and special, and Andy was her zookeeper, flinging bits of meat into her cage, and there was a way that this was sexy. Andy was black Irish, which meant some mythological breed of Irish caused by the mating of natives with a boatful of Iberians, producing people who look like Andy, white as a ghost with a head of full black, black hair. When Andy was a little girl, she prayed to unicorns to not get boobs, and it worked. Her black hair fell into a natural Superman swirl on her forehead. Andy was attractive in the manner of an old-fashioned movie star, Michelle thought, or maybe it was her chivalry, if chivalry was what it was. Sometimes Michelle worried that Andy just wanted to knock her out so she didn't have to deal with talking to her. Michelle tended to never shut up, and she wanted big drama in bed all the time, requiring her lover to be a roller coaster or a tsunami. Michelle and Andy were not faithful to one another. Theirs was a messily open relationship, one in which rules and boundaries were never fully articulated so they could never be fully broken. In spite of this, there was the feeling that Michelle was crapping on the rules all the time with her haphazard acquisition of lovers. She had an affair with a junkie troubadour named Penny, who sang Johnny Thunder songs on her acoustic guitar as they walked through the industrial wasteland of her neighborhood, Dogpatch, a place not yet gentrified, with vacant storefronts and SRO hotels, one of which Penny lived in. Penny had tangled black hair that clawed out from her head like Medusa. She wore spandex pants and clunky boots with broken zippers. The boots barely stayed on her feet, so there was always the exciting possibility that Penny would wipe out. Walking down the street with her was like watching a circus acrobat. Penny's small room was padded with thrift store clothing, mounds of it. They made out on her mattress on the floor, a muted black-and-white television strobing them with Nosferatu. Though Penny was probably on heroin, and Michelle was certainly drunk, the feeling of their kisses was its own inebriation. But in the morning, panic brought Michelle awake in Penny's stuffed room, a panic of missing Andy. It was their one-year anniversary. Though Penny was who she wanted last night, a string of slow kisses tasting of new intoxicants, Andy was who she wanted to wake up with, the shore she longed to beach herself upon. It felt suddenly terrible that she had spent the eve of their anniversary with another. Michelle peered through mascara, muddied eyes at the thrift store clothes heaping the wall in dunes. Penny would be smothered in an earthquake. Penny shambled out of bed, skeletal in the daylight, and rutted through the base of the pile, extracting something that shimmered like the scales of a magical fish. She pulled it over the torn slip dress she'd passed out in and left the room to throw up in the bathroom down the hall. Michelle fled. She wheeled about Dogpatch, an unfamiliar apocalyptic neighborhood. Did buses even run out here? How had she gotten there? Penny had met her at a bus stop with her guitar. She had strummed, You Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory, singing it with a cracking voice. Penny really was like the girl Johnny Thunders. Someone had tattooed Chinese rock on her shoulder with a sewing needle. It was a spidery tattoo. The spindly lines shook crooked down her skin, but it worked with her look. Penny was amazing, but Michelle worried there was a time limit on that sort of amazing. That it was the sort of amazing that could begin to look sad with age. Michelle fought against this analysis, which seemed cruel and typical. The messed-up queers Michelle ran with tempted fate daily. They were creating a new way to live, new templates for everything—life, death, beauty, aging, art. Penny would never be pathetic. She would always be daring and deep, her addiction a middle finger held up to proper society. Right? 
Andy had her own love intrigues, one with a shy photographer who'd grown up in Alaska. Andy insisted this was not as glamorous as it sounded. Alaska? Michelle projected sleighs and fur coats onto the girl, who she had never met, but whose name was, amazingly, Carlotta, same as Andy's. Like getting to go into the same public restroom, having a date with your exact name was a whimsical perk of lesbianism. Michelle imagined this Carlotta as a femme twin of Andy, standing on a windswept glacier, wearing a fluffy hat cut from the pelt of a baby seal. No matter that the glaciers had long ago melted into floods, and that baby seals were cartoony memories surviving on as stuffed animals, the real things long extincted. Michelle was happy Andy was having crushes, unless she wasn't, and then she would demand painful information from her girlfriend. Did you touch her boobs, Michelle interrogated? Did you? Andy bristled under these demands, and the pair fought. Michelle hated when a pane of lead came down over Andy's heart. Andy, who was always so ready to serve her. Where had she gone? Michelle was in tears. I only want to know if you touched her boobs, she cried. Andy was her girlfriend. She had the right to know. Michelle had a second affair with a mannish girl named Captain, who hosted lots of drugged-out after-parties in her bedroom above Valencia Street. Andy rarely stayed out late, but Michelle often did not make it home until the nighttime sky began to brighten with the coming day. Michelle's calculations were as anxious as a vampire's. She had to be asleep before sunrise, or she would worry that her life was out of control and have a panic attack. But the inevitable end of a party always broke her heart, and so she would push it to the extreme last moment, dashing down Valencia in a pair of shoes so worn down she was balancing on the nub of a nail sticking out from the heel, one step ahead of the rising sun. In Captain's room, everyone listened to Pavement and Elliot Smith and licked powdered pyramids of ecstasy from their palms. Before Michelle fell into a debilitating bliss, she and Captain bonded over astrology, and Captain let her pluck a card from her Salvador Dali tarot deck. Paralyzed by the drug, they made out on Captain's bed for about five hours. Their friends heaped around them like sea lions. Latecomers brought nitrous, and the crack and hiss of the slender canisters became the soundtrack to their slow-motion kisses. On and on this went, time made obsolete by chemicals. Captain was not an amateur. She understood the relationship drug indulgers had to sunrise. The windows were hung with black curtains, her room as immune to the passage of time as a Vegas casino. Together, Andy and Michelle had an affair with a sluggish addict named Linda. Michelle had found Linda at the bookstore where she worked and was excited by the girl's willingness to consume large quantities of drugs and alcohol. Sometimes Michelle felt resentful towards Andy for being so moderate, for sipping some ridiculous fake drink like a daiquiri while Michelle got hammered on shots and whatever drugs were around. Andy would go home at a reasonable hour, abandoning Michelle at the bar, but Linda would stay up until her intake knocked her out. On their second date, Michelle pet the girl's head as it hung out the window of a party, sending streams of barf onto the street below. When she was empty, the pair had found a closet in a bedroom and had sex. Andy could recognize the threat of Linda. Unlike Penny or Captain, virtual one-night stands, Michelle kept returning to Linda. She talked about her too much in that wistful way. Everything about Linda became sort of magical. She wants to own a flower shop, Michelle gushed. That's her big dream. Isn't that sweet? Andy thought it was actually pretty mundane, and her concern swelled. Michelle loved the tattoos on Linda's calves, the little prince on one leg and tank girl on the other. When Andy named three other girls who had either one of those tattoos, Michelle iced her for the rest of the day. Linda wore slips as dresses, just like Michelle. She wasn't butch and she wasn't femme. She was Kiki, a 1960s throwback. Her hair was sort of greasy, which was right for the time. 
People were buying expensive hair products to make their locks hang as limply as Linda's home-cut bob. She would bundle the length of it into twin buns on her head like animal ears. Linda's face was round, and since Michelle was so often looking up at her in darkness, she began to think of it as the moon, the way it caught the light and glowed. Linda was raised in a hippie commune in Vermont. She was so obsessed with corn dogs, she planned on getting one tattooed on her shoulder. Andy conceded defeat and joined the affair, which had the desired result of squashing it. Everyone felt bad at the end. Linda had bit Andy on the lip and given her a cold sore, so now Andy quietly held Michelle responsible for her having contracted oral herpes. Michelle felt like her libido was out of control, and this made her feel crazy and ashamed. Linda felt also that where she perhaps should have had boundaries, she in fact had had none. She tattooed a dunce cap on her wrist with a sewing needle and India ink. The word fool pixelated beneath it. Michelle would see Linda mornings at the bookstore, looking positively green after a night out with Ziggy. What did you guys do? Michelle asked. Michelle had been home in bed with Andy, watching television and eating popcorn. She was trying to live a different life and was worried about her ex, if that's who Linda was. I smoked crack, Linda whispered, scandalized by herself. Oh, God, Michelle gasped. Be careful. She tried to talk to Ziggy about it later. Don't smoke crack with Linda, she begged her friend. Ziggy was tough and could handle herself in the druggy jungles of the mission. But there was something weak about Linda, something defenseless. Michelle could easily imagine her falling into the gutter and never coming back. She was too gentle. She'd be a goner. Michelle would find herself giving Linda spare change as she walked home from a bar five years from now. Ziggy was annoyed at Michelle getting all nosy about Linda. Linda's fine, she said. Linda's a grown-up. Ziggy resented Michelle's suggestion that she was a bad influence on the girl, plus a little hurt that Michelle wasn't worried about her drug intake as well. Ziggy had initiated the crack adventure and consumed far more of it than Linda. What did that say about her, then? Was she already written off as a waste case beyond help? Ziggy thought there was maybe no one in the world who was worried about her. The conversation made her feel terribly alone, and a fracture, thin as a spiderweb, began to climb the surface of their friendship. Linda was not all that long ago, Ziggy reminded Michelle, as she pondered the teen poet she was now obsessed with. Michelle had made many pledges to Andy, both spoken aloud and deep in her heart. I will never do that again, she had promised, referring to the affair with Linda. How many lovers did a person need anyway? Why was she so greedy? In her heart, she prayed to whatever was listening, Please don't let me forget how much I love this. She was lying fully wrapped around her girlfriend, Andy, her face nuzzled in the glossy, sweet stink of her pomaded hair. Royal crown, the grease came packed in such an aesthetically pleasing container, squat and round, its tin cover pin-poked into a relief of a royal crown. It was rumored to be Elvis's own pomade, and even Michelle would rub some into her long, wet hair, to make it fragrant and less burnt-out looking. It smelled like oily flowers, like the worn pillowcases of long-ago lovers. Michelle worried, as she pushed her face into her girlfriend's hair, that the product would give her zits. But she did it anyway, feeling devotion surge through her. Please don't let me forget how much I love Andy. But she would. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writer's block. And don't forget to join everyone at Radar's Spectacle, June 17th at the Verdi Club, with performances by Phonique, Sintra Wilson, Love Wars, and lots more, plus an art auction with work by Nan Golden, Richard Hell, Dave Eggers, Ann Carson, and more artists. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.